G'day, and welcome to the second episode of Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C-130 Hercules aircraft. Today we're talking about the historical factors that influenced Australia to acquire its first 12 C-130s in 1958. I'm your host, Bill Korolakis. Some of you know me as K-9. I served over 10 years in the Canadian Air Force and then over 20 years in the Australian Air Force, initially as a C-130 navigator, and I retired in 2020 after being Commander Air Mobility Group. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by those aircraft. This podcast series is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about the Australian Air Force C-130s titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in 2024. Let's get stuck into this episode. The tale of how Australia decided on the C-130 has to be started in post-World War II. At that time, most nations were downsizing their militaries. But in Australia, given its ties to the British Commonwealth and the spread of communism in Southeast Asia, a simmering Indonesia, and an awakening China, Australia needed a credible defense strategy. Based primarily on those historical ties to Britain, Australia developed a defence strategy in June 1947 called Defence, Post-War Policy. This policy was prioritised by Defence Minister John Dedman as placing Australian forces, and this is a quote here, at the disposal of the United Nations for the maintenance of international peace and security, including regional arrangements in the Pacific, the forces to be maintained under arrangements for cooperation in British Commonwealth defence, and the forces to be maintained to provide for the inherent right of individual self-defense. The security of Australia will therefore rest on the blending of these three safeguards, end quote. These commitments reflected Australia's strong ties to Britain. But global events intervened in time. Britain waded into Australia's defense strategy by establishing defense frameworks in Southeast Asia. It established the Far East Air Force, It suggested to Australia that Australia should support defence of the nexus between Britain and Australia. And in this case, Britain was referring to Middle Eastern interests such as the Suez, the Persian Gulf, Cyprus, etc. Australia's leaders actually agreed with the British suggestion and developed the notion of forward defence. This term was going to last a long time in Australia's defensive strategy. In fact, all the way through until post-Vietnam. The strategy called for sending a mobile task force abroad to support imperial interests in the Middle East region, while managing lesser defense risks at home. The forward defense policy was reinforced by Menzies in 1950 and by the Defense Committee in 1951 when it noted a preference for defense of the Middle East over Malaya, if you can believe that, leading to such deployments as Number 78 Wing, which went to Malta for the period of 1952 to 1954. Incredible that Australia would be sending forces to Malta instead of looking after Southeast Asia, but that's what happened. During the early 1950s, it was becoming increasingly evident that the nature of conflict was shifting from being state-on-state to a world of spreading communism through insurgencies, particularly in Southeast Asia, close to home for Australia. This was well captured by a Chief of Service Committee appreciation which said, and this is a quote, Malaya is of strategic importance in the Cold War period as well as in a major global war. Retention of Malaya gives defense in depth to Australia. Its loss would mean that communist influence and power would come within striking range of Australia. 
Clearly, defense strategists were concerned about the spread of communism close to Australia. Given the changing geopolitical developments in the near region, Australia maintained a keen interest in its own neighborhood. And based on its imperial ties, Australia did the following. It supported the Far East Strategic Reserve to defend Malaya. It entered into regional security arrangements in the early 1950s, such as the Australia, New Zealand, and Malaya Arrangement, which became the Five Powers Defense Arrangements, or FPDA for short, in the early 1970s. And the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, CETO, which followed in 1954 as a West-leaning defense collective. Importantly, it included the United States. In 1955, under these arrangements, Australia committed fighter and bomber squadrons to the defense of Malaya, which also saw the expansion of Butterworth as a major base for the ADF. The Australia, New Zealand, and United States Treaty, ANZUS, was signed in 1951. But throughout the early 1950s, Australian strategists assumed that if any serious threat to Australia's defense arose, imperial forces, in other words, British forces, would come to Australia's aid. Interesting that they thought that, because it didn't really work in World War II, did it? The forward defense strategy led to a reconsideration of the ADF structure. It needed to meet the demands of future conflicts at a distance from Australia. And for most of the ADF, in particular the Australian Army, that meant being expeditionary in design. With respect to air mobility, the Air Force needed a transport aircraft that could move the ADF long distances, rapidly, and en masse. Let's look at the Royal Australian Air Force structure now. Prior to 1957, the RAF did not have any doctrine upon which to base its design, but it was widely accepted that the air mobility fleet needed to be able to rapidly deploy an infantry battalion to Malaya, or even as far as the Middle East. And as great as an aircraft as it was, the Dakota simply could not meet those needs. An infantry battalion in the 1950s required the movement of about 800 soldiers and many tons of equipment, much of which didn't even fit into a Dakota, and Dakotas took two to four days to get to Malaya, and the same time to get back. That wasn't good enough. Not until 1954 did Defence Minister Sir Philip McBride publicly conclude that Australia's defence strategy required enhanced defence force strength, and that included more transport. With operations underway in Malaya, this led to the development of a four-structure proposal favouring funding for the RAF from 1954 to 1957 to acquire advanced technology fighters bombers, and transport aircraft, and they were prioritized in that order. The resultant program, put forward by Minister for Air Athol Townley, stated that the RAF's defense objectives were, here's a quote, the air defense of Australia and its territories, the defense of sea communications in the Australia, New Zealand, and Malaya region in conjunction with the Navy, and the provision of forces for overseas deployments. Cold War objectives, like those of the other services, were simply to resist communist aggression whenever and wherever it occurs. That was the defense strategy. To support these defense objectives, Townley noted that the RAF needed exceptional mobility. So in the latter half of 1954, the Australian government agreed that the RAF should produce a report making recommendations about which transport, and also fighters and bombers, should be acquired. So the Murdoch mission was put together in late 1954. Air Vice Marshal Alistair Murdoch, he later became an Air Marshal and led the Air Force, was tasked to develop these recommendations. He was told to only look at aircraft directly relevant to the RAF's broad roles under the endorsed strategic guidance, namely the defense of Australia, national commitments under the Cold War, and the defense of Malaya. 
He was also told to consider the effect on the Australian aviation industry, but his instructions permitted him to ignore industry concerns for transport aircraft, primarily because we were only buying a few. The Air Board instructed him that the new air mobility platform had a few requirements. So here's a bit of a shopping list. It needed to be capable of moving a battalion, including equipment, in one lift. It had to meet the wider requirements of the Navy and the Army, leading to many adjustments and requirements, some of which were later discarded, including, can you believe it, someone wanted the new transport fleet to be able to tow a glider. Luckily, they dropped that one. It had to be more comfortable for crew and passengers than the Dakota, including a pressurized cabin, heating and cooling throughout the aircraft, and more discreet toilet facilities than the Dakota's Thunderbox, which is a colloquial term for the toilet. Having a more accessible cargo door, ideally the sort that came with a high-wing aircraft, and it needed to be able to transit between Malaya and Australia with heavy items without the need for stopping. Given the variety of contenders and the many compromises most of the available options would have imposed on mission effectiveness, Murdoch was authorized to visit overseas aircraft manufacturers and to discuss the realm of possibilities. He put together a list of contenders. At the time, there was a widely held belief in Australia, and even more so in the United Kingdom, that Australia would continue to support the British aerospace industry and would buy a British airplane. Murdoch surprised everyone when he recommended the C-130 as the only aircraft capable of meeting Australia's needs. And all you have to do is take a cursory glance at the contender's specifications, and it showed that the C-130A was far and away a technological leap that provided much more capability than any of the competitors available at that time. The aircraft represented significant challenges in supportability due to its advanced technology, but the recommendation to acquire an advanced aircraft was in keeping with the general intent of having a technologically advanced air force, and this tenet is still true today for the RAF. The report was agreed in July 1955, but action was delayed due to the inevitable debates about affordability and just how many aircraft were needed. Many people were saying, what do we need such a big airplane for and why do we have to have 12 of them? And that, of course, raged in Parliament and in the committees for quite some time. The delay proved to be fortuitous because Australia's reliance on Imperial Forces for Defense of Australia was coming under increased scrutiny in the latter half of the 1950s. This was based on a couple of things. Britain's capacity and willingness to defend imperial interests east of the Suez was wavering. It took them until 1968 to actually state this as official policy, but in private discussions they were making this clear to Australia's leaders. Australia's increasing alignment with US strategic interests was also becoming ever more evident. And bearing on the debate were ties with the US established during the Second World War, the Korean War, the ANZUS Treaty and through dialogue with Washington about how to stem the tide of communism in Southeast Asia. In 1956, some key discussions took place between Washington and Canberra, and London and Canberra, leading to a significant policy adjustment. In particular, there was a discussion between President Eisenhower and Prime Minister Menzies that led Australia to realize that highly mobile, flexible forces had to become the West's priority, Menzies said that the task of the armed forces was not the territorial defense of Australia. That's interesting in and of itself, isn't it? And he continued, Australia was to have forces that were organized and ready to move rapidly to oppose the spread of communism in Southeast Asia, and which also were equipped and trained to be compatible with the emerging major regional Western power, the Americans. Thus, in October 1956, 
Australia came to a momentous conclusion and aligned its defense system as closely as possible with the United States. This was a huge strategic change. One of the outcomes was that where possible, only military equipment that was fully compatible with that of the Americans was to be acquired. With respect to aircraft acquisition, this effectively removed the British industry as the preferred aerospace supplier. Additionally, Chief of the Air Staff at the time, Air Marshal Sir John Blackjack Macaulay, responded to this adjusted defense posture by stating, as a quote, Until the arrival of the C-130 Hercules, recommended by the Murdoch mission, the Air Force lacked the long-range transport aircraft essential for rapid deployment, reinforcement, and resupply. So, this finally resulted in funding for the C-130A. In July 1957, negotiations with Lockheed resulted in an order for 12 C-130As at a cost of 36 million U.S. dollars. That included the aircraft spares and training. Australia became the first foreign customer to purchase and operate the C-130. And this set the scene for the next 65 years plus of C-130 operations that would shape Australia's role in the region and on the global stage, along with touching the lives of millions of Australians. And that's how Australia came to get the C-130. Next week, we'll talk about the C-130 training program and just how transformational the C-130 was for the RAF. Thanks for listening, and if you know anyone that loves aviation, military history, or was even a passenger on a C-130, please tell them about the Workhorse Podcast. You can find the Workhorse Podcast on all the usual platforms, and you can also find the podcast and some notes on my website, spartanspirit.au. That's one word, spartanspirit.au. And this website also has updated information about the Air Mobility Workhorse book, which hopefully we'll see in a few months. Thank you for listening.